Thank you for listening to the Gateway to the Rockies podcast from Visit Aurora from the Raptors at the Stanley Marketplace. This is the show dedicated to telling the stories of Aurora, Colorado. Hi there, I'm Dave, the Senior Marketing Manager for Visit Aurora. Lady Justice Brewing is a shining light in Aurora. It's women-owned, minority-owned, and LGBTQ plus-owned. It's also an extremely important community gathering space. Oh, and by the way, the home to some pretty great beer here in the Rocky Mountain region. Uh, today, I'm grateful to be joined by one of the owners of Lady Justice Brewing and my fellow DU alum, Betsy Lane. Hey, go Pioneers. We should start with the fight song, right? <laughs> Do we have one of those? I don't know. <laughs> I'll be honest. I, didn't go to, I went to one hockey game in my time at DU. That was yeah, kind of like yeah. the breadth of my social yeah. experience. <laughs> um, uh, and before we get to the beer, I want to talk about uh, you, you played the banjo. Oh, yeah. And do. other instruments I as well. Do, yeah. How did that come about? That part had always sort of been there. Yeah? Yeah. I grew up playing a fairly musical household, so I played piano and violin and cello and saxophone as my instrument in high school. And then uh, at some point, I taught myself guitar when I was younger, because my older brother played too, so there was always instruments around, right? And then, um, yeah, I started playing banjo. Uh, when I moved to Denver, I got lessons from a local musician named Laura Goldhammer, uh, who's also a good friend, and uh, so it became banjo lesson, but also like friend hangout time too, right. so uh, and so I would take lessons from her every, like, I would do it for a year or two, and then uh, just be out of touch with her for like a year, and then get back into it, so I've dabbled on and off in the banjo world for how similar is it to playing a guitar? Uh, not very. Okay. Yeah, they're tuned in different keys, but it's not, I don't know. It's a pretty, it's a simple thing to learn. Okay. <laughs> if Enough. you want to learn it, you can. <laughs> uh, you're originally from St. Louis. Yeah. So I have to get your opinion on Provel cheese. Oh, well, it's the Cadillac of cheeses. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very polarizing subject. Everybody I've ever talked to from St. Louis, they either love it yeah. and it's their staple or don't. No. You either love it or hate it. There is no like, oh, this might be good. No, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, St. Louis is home to the uh, air quote, king of beers, heavy air quotes. Um, <laughs> you get your first taste of craft beer at a house party at D you and mm -hmm. say no thanks. How, how do you go from not only learning to appreciate craft beer, but then taking the steps to start brewing it yourself? Yeah, my craft beer love came from being in Denver and moving, um, moved to Denver specifically to go to DU. And it was, I was at DU 2000, 2004. Yeah. So on the early end of the craft beer boom in Denver, uh, very early end of it. And so, yeah, the beer that I tried at that house party at DU uh, was from, I think it was from Breckenridge Brewery. Yeah. Right. Uh, but as I got older and uh, I moved to St. Louis, moved back to Denver in 2009. So I'd left a little bit when I had returned. There was a lot more craft breweries around. And uh, so that's sort of where the love of craft beer came was honestly just hanging out at breweries with friends and trying more and more of it. Fat Tire was sort of my gateway beer into <laughs> and Fat Tire and Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was, you know, the gateway beers into the craft beer scene. And so it was really just about once I found something I liked, which I liked Fat Tire, uh, original Fat Tire. It's been through a lot of changes, but uh, I liked it. And so finding more beers that you like, you're like, well, I like Fat Tire and this, you know, this Amber Ale over here is supposed to taste like it. So, you, you know, you just start uh, tasting more stuff and experimenting it. And um, my friend group at the time was the folks I did AmeriCorps with. I served in AmeriCorps. And so our friendship, you know, there was always a beer at the table. So 
Um, you know, when Kate and Jen and I were starting the brewery, it it, it was because we were gathering over beer so often after work. Um, it just became part of our, you know, like social fabric. What was it that made you decide, like, I, I can do this too? Was was there intricacies in the flavors? Was there, was there something about the artistry of it that drew you to crafting it as well? Yeah, you know, at first it it took a lot of home brewing and a lot of trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> the early beers weren't great. <laughs> But once you click and figure it out, once you brew that first homebrew that you actually really love and you're proud of, it's kind of hard to stay away from it. Um, and so for me, it was figuring out when I build a recipe, what I really enjoy about it is figuring out really what's the blend of malt that needs to go in there that's mm-hmm. going to make this style. I want it to be true to style, but I want it to be a better version than you've ever had before. And so what's going to get us there and how are the hops going to play into that? So the craft behind recipe building is really um, something I'm really drawn to. And then there's the science on the fermentation end of it, science on the brewing end of it, what happens to these flavors when you heat them up, when you cool them down. Uh, it's all sort of in there. I come. My dad was a science teacher for 25 years, so I have a little bit of the nerd nice. inside of me that I, I get to play with sometimes, you know. You mentioned the co-owners, uh, Jen Cuesta and, and Kate Power. Mm-hmm. Did you know each other before working at AmeriCorps? No, that's how we met. Um, the three of us had all... Uh, met doing AmeriCorps in Arvada. Uh, Kate and I had both moved uh, to Colorado specifically to take this AmeriCorps job. So that's what got me back to Colorado after I had left. And uh, Jen grew up in um, Little Ten Inglewood area. And so she was coming back home after going to college and serving in AmeriCorps out of state. So uh, we met because we were working together. You credit Jen with the kind of original eureka moment behind Lady Justice. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was influenced by your time working at AmeriCorps. How did that experience specifically lead to the creation of Lady J? Yeah, so we were always having to raise money and do capacity building. That's what you do. As an AmeriCorps Vista, your job. It stands for Volunteers in Service to America. So you spend up to two years at a location helping these nonprofits really get a better groundwork and a better foundation to be successful longer. Yeah. So a lot of that is fundraising um, and building programming. And we were doing this during the recession, 20, 2009 and 2011. There was like no money. Right. Grant money had dried up. Mm-hmm. It was so hard to get a grant. It was ho- so hard to get your regular big donors to feel comfortable enough to keep donating because everybody, it, it was hitting everyone. Yeah. And so we would go to Vine Street Pub, which hopefully will open again here pretty soon, uh, 17th and Vine. And uh, we would just drink beer and talk about how hard it was to do this and how it shouldn't be so hard for nonprofits that are doing really good work. This nonprofit did uh, service learning curriculum in schools, and it was really good. It was really good curriculum, and it was really important stuff that kids could learn how to give back to their communities while they're also hitting all of their targets for school. It was a cool, it was a cool nonprofit. And so the conversations were, it shouldn't be this hard to fund things that are really needed in our community. And we were at Vine Street talking about this over beers and Jen had said like, hey, you know, like we are, we're Vistas, we're broke. So we made $10,000 a year as Vistas because right. the idea is that you live at the poverty level of the city in which you serve. We were on food stamps. So we didn't have a lot of cash, and yet we would save money to go out and have beer together. Yeah. And Vine Street was always busy. Like, it was sort of recession-proof. And 
So what Jen had said was, well, how do we get people to spend their beer money on these nonprofits? And so that was sort of the spark of the idea, but it we didn't really seriously go for it and start working on it until 2014. So it took about three years. Kate and Jen both left the state to go to law school. But while Kate was in law school, she worked on a business law class and she had to write a fake business plan. And so she wrote one after this brewery idea we had and got a lot of really good feedback. And so came back to Jen and I and was just like, hey, when we move back here, when Jen and I get back to Colorado, do you actually want to work on this thing? And we did. You have this great idea. You start by brewing in a small space near Lakeside mm -hmm. using a membership model. You mm -hmm. eventually grow and decide you need a tap room. Why was it important to you and the other owners to have a community gathering space to reach out beyond the beer? There were a couple of reasons. One was that the membership model was exclusive, which we didn't love because that was sort of antithesis to the whole point of Lady Justice was to be a, a community, um, a community brewery. And but, you know, we didn't know. So we had this membership model. We were philanthropic breweries. So we were giving our profits away. And we actually didn't know if this was going to work. We right. didn't know if it was going to be sustainable. So we started small on purpose, which is why we had the small brew space. It's why we had the membership model, because we didn't have anywhere to put people. Right. And so the memberships were going really well. And we just kept hearing from our community, from our members. We had anywhere from 75 to 125 members at any given time. And they, they all wished they could sit down and just like hang out and have a beer. And so we just thought it would be a good move to try to find a space where we could um, have a tap room, have a little bit more brew space, a little bit more of a proper brew space too, um, and see if we could sort of baby step our way up to a larger company. It was very incremental. We were pretty risk adverse for the first few years, took a lot of baby steps and didn't take a ton of risks. And so we had, we shared space with another brewery and that allowed us to sort of baby step into taproom world and yeah. see if it would be a viable model for us because we were giving, essentially giving away, giving away our profit. So we had to figure out like, can we price in overhead and what we need to operate and still support our mission by donating back to the community? You do give back to the community in a major way. You host yes. networking events and workshops for LGBTQ plus small businesses. Mm -hmm. You do open mics, you host artist markets. Uh, Ferment and Vent is a great event. You hold for like-minded makers to come together. These aren't just traffic drivers to the tap room, though. You're really building a community. Was that always part of the vision when you began or just a natural evolution of your mission? Our rule basically from day one has been if it doesn't fit our mission, we're not going to do it. So we always have to walk this line of figuring out what what are our community needs and are there needs that fit very specifically into Lady J's mission, which is to support and empower women and girls in Colorado. And so what that has actually grown into and when we moved into our like first full tap room that we own um, in the arts district, we actually had to go back and rewrite our mission statement to reflect our physical space so that we could talk about our physical space as it uh, compares to our mission. And so what we're doing in there essentially for us is uh, we're allowing physical space to be a part of giving back to our community. It's it's always been there. It's always been a part of our mission statement, but we really had to 
be very uh, intentional about the way we thought about it and and had to tweak our business model a little bit to make sure that we weren't um, we weren't doing it just to bring in a profit without having something to give back at the end of the day. I love the, the block that you're on in Aurora on Colfax. It's a microcosm of mm-hmm. the diversity of our city. Mm-hmm. Was opening at that location deliberate or, or kind of serendipitous? Mostly on the serendipitous side, we were shopping for a space that wasn't too big that would allow us to have a tap room. We wanted a tap room only model, which is something you can't really do anymore post COVID. Uh, but the idea was that we would be heavy on taproom traffic and light on distribution for our first two or three years. So we didn't need a space that had a ton of room in the back and no room up front, right? So we were looking for something that wasn't too expensive on rent and overhead, which uh, a lot of times take you outside of the city limits of Denver. So that that brought us, that price point actually brought us to Aurora, brought us to the Arts District. Um, There was a brewery in there before, Peak to Peak, and uh, the owner of Peak to Peak was, uh, it was his second location and he was needing to scale back and focus more on his brew pub in South Aurora. So he was um, he was ready to have somebody take it over who could, I think, nurture that community a little bit better than he could, have more taproom hours. He was only using it really for the production in the back. So he, when he met us, he was really excited about the possibility of what we could do. He, he saw our potential there before we did because we didn't totally understand the arts district yet. Um, but once we visited a few times and once we talked to neighbors and once we got to know what that community was about, it was just like, yes, this is, this is perfect for us. This is a great fit for our mission. And this community are exactly the people that we like to drink beer with and like to be in community with. So it was sort of a win-win all around. Yeah, I feel extremely grateful that I've been able to have Twa from Bond and Butter mm-hmm. um, on the podcast, and also yes. Aaron Vega from mm-hmm. the People's Building. It really yeah. feels like that neighborhood is is a real collaborative space. I mean, all the tenants in that area mm-hmm. really support each other, and it's it's kind of the high idea of being a true community. I imagine mm-hmm. it's a really wonderful district to be in. The Arts District, I think, is underappreciated by a lot of people and really not known very well by folks outside of the district. And I wish that people in Denver, people who hang out here at Stanley Marketplace, uh, I think they don't realize what a gem they have just like half a mile down the road. Uh, So I hope more people do visit it because it's just it's such a cool part of town. It reminds me of uh, Santa Fe Arts District like 15 years ago. It's one of the last sort of weird parts of town. And I hope that we can keep it weird for a long time. You know, Um, we're we're trying to keep what's going on in there is there's so much diversity. There's so many wonderful small businesses, community organizations, social organizations that are all in the same place that you're just really getting a very special community of people and with the arts district sort of surrounding like holding it together you're getting a community of crafters and a community of people who like to create and who believe in how arts can save communities to be able to just work there and hang out there every day is really special and i I hope more people remember that it exists or learn about it and start coming and hanging out because it's it's really an awesome place to be it's it's also a great example of how you can uplift and amplify a community without major developers slash mm-hmm. corporate entities gentrifying the area because you know these are people actually within the community elevating its mm-hmm. uh, its value and its appeal to the community without 
the ugly side of pushing out a community that was already established there. Yeah, I think one of the big concerns from a lot of the business owners and community members in that neighborhood is the fear of displacement and the fear of the thing that makes the Arts District special. They're the people who are there now and the people who have been there for the last 20, 30, 40 years. You know, our landlords, they first moved to the United States, I think it was like 30 or 40 years ago. They've owned these buildings um, for a long time. It was our landlord, our shop used to be her seamstress shop. And so it's the, the a lot of the building owners in the neighborhood. So a lot of the folks who are the landlords of these folks are also like, they live in the neighborhood. They've raised their kids there. They've had businesses there. It's very special to them. And so I think there is an opportunity for the community to come together and just say, no, we're not going to develop to some out-of-state person, you know, with millions and millions of dollars. We're not going to let the community that is already here <clears throat> be displaced because that's not what we're about and that's it won't be special anymore. No. You're, you're social entrepreneurs donating most of your profit to nonprofit organizations that benefit women and girls primarily in Colorado. This dedication to philanthropy isn't a PR campaign, though. It's it's born out of necessity, particularly for women and girls. Those nonprofits, those organizations are severely underfunded and, and frankly, underexposed and undervalued. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, there's a statistic out there that something, I'm going to get it wrong, so you'll have to fact check me. But basically, grant funding to organizations specifically for women and girls. When you write a grant where the project is specifically for women and girls, those projects are less funded than anything else. So, and it's like something insane. It's like only like 3% of all the giving yeah. in America goes specifically to women or girls, right? So there is, there's a hole there. And I don't think people, I didn't realize that when we were first right. starting Lady J, we learned that um, as we were building, as we were building up our mission. Um, <clears throat> so I think there's this, there's an underlying need just in general to to very specifically fund uh, women and girls. And then within that, there's also, you know, Lady J exists specifically because of this. So our the way that we talk about it is if we're ever not living to our mission, if we're ever not giving money to where we say it's going to go, if we ever decide to not donate money out, then we're not living to the mission of Lady Justice Bahrain and Lady Justice Bahrain shouldn't exist anymore or I should sell it to somebody else and go do something else. Right. Um, so right now, you know, that's why Lady J exists and that's that's the whole point of its existence. So we're always gonna give money away. We're always gonna be philanthropic. It's, it's why we exist. So, um, you know, being a social enterprise brewery is interesting because yeah, there's a lot of times where you can you can look at a company and be like, oh, we know why they're giving this money away. You, you know, they really need some good PR right now or somebody messed up real bad last month and now they gotta fix it. We hope we're never that. Yeah. Um, people make mistakes and stuff happens, but we hope that because we're so mission driven in our work that it's always just gonna be there and people are always gonna understand that if they choose to spend their money on Lady J Beer, whether that's in the tap room or out in distribution, uh, that they know at least some of those dollars is gonna go back into their community and support something that's important to them. You alluded to this a bit, but the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion can feel commodified at this point, a, a box that some companies check off without any real meaningful initiatives. But that idea of inclusion is embedded into the soul of Lady J. Uh, why is it important for Lady Justice to embody representation uh, and to create that safe space, particularly for the marginalized communities? Yeah, you know, we talk we talk about this in a couple of ways at Lady J. One of them is that just 
just being like actual representation is really important. Mm -hmm. Like having a physical seat at the table is really important yeah. because that's where decisions get made. Like you told me there's a meeting of business owners right behind me. Yep. Decisions are being made in that room right now that are going to affect these people's well-being and their businesses. Everybody should be represented in that. Uh, so just physically being in the space and having the ability, if it, Lady J, something that is important to people about us is that we have the ability to uh, embody sort of what people are hoping for in terms of the direction the craft beer community might be going. So they can look at Lady Jane and be like, oh, you can be queer, you can be a woman and still own a business and be successful at it. Your wife, Allison, is your marketing director, right? Yeah. And she handles a lot of your social media. All of it. <laughs> she does a great job. She's very it. good at it, yeah. Uh, there was a post that, that raised my eyebrows a bit mm -hmm. and it alluded to the idea, and I apologize if I get the wording wrong, but it was the idea that around June, you get a lot of attention because of Pride mm -hmm. Month, mm -hmm. and then these, the support isn't there the rest of the year. Yeah. And it seems, particularly in the last maybe half decade, where companies have made it a mission to be very inclusive and shine a light on LGBTQ plus businesses, and then you don't hear a peep from them the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. Is it the lack of support throughout the rest of the year that's frustrating or the idea that maybe these LGBTQ plus entities are being held up as mascots to a degree for mm. maybe initiatives yeah. that aren't particularly fruitful? Yeah, I think it, it's both. And I will say like some companies don't need to parade it around all year long because just of who they are and like the bones of what they do. Do they have healthcare policies that might support the trans community? Do they have um, do they have parental leave policies that are non-gendered? Do they, you know, so some companies just do it right all year round. And so, and those aren't the companies we're worried about. Right, right. What we're worried about, yeah, is uh, are companies that will, during the month of June, donate money out or they won't even the worst is when like they make a t-shirt or something and change your logo to a rainbow flag yes, and then none of the profits go to help anybody right. or do anything uh, that's problematic but then also what happens too is you'll see companies will give money to pro-queer organizations and then like the very next month give money to anti right, right. and so part of my thing is if i'm going to choose to spend my dollars somewhere. I just wanna know if those dollars are aligning. Am I am I supporting the profit of a company that's going to treat its employees well, that is going to um, put a product out there that is somehow going to do some good in the world? And if they're not being honest about that, I just don't wanna spend my money there. Yeah. That's all, I just wanna know what a company is about. And if they're not about what I'm about, that's okay, I'm just not gonna spend my money there, right? Um, now, if they're outwardly hateful, that's not okay. Right. And they'll, you know, <laughs> then we have to start talking about it. Um, yeah, so that's the thing about, it's just funny, because you know, from March to June, so March is Women's History Month, and then June is Pride Month. So from March to June, everybody comes calling and they're like, you know, they want interviews and uh, this is hilarious because we're doing this April. Right. I'm not saying that. I've been trying to get this interview for a year, so I stand by <laughs> yeah, my track. Yeah, on the record, Visitor is not doing what I'm saying right now. Uh, but it does happen and it's funny because it's we, we just want to be um, a company that people care about all year round. Right. And that responsibility is on us to try to make that happen. And it's on the consumer to demand that of what they're spending their money on. Right. Through Lady J, you honor the women that have come before you. You also support organizations that help future generations of women. Do you, do you feel that sense of responsibility to serve as a bridge between those two? Yeah, I mean, for us, what we focus on the most in our giving is just trying to uh, support the needs that are coming to us 
you know, now. So we'll get requests from organizations all year round, um, multiple, multiple emails a day, yeah. of people who um, need money or beer for an event. And we try to field them as best we can. Yeah. Um, and so the work that we do in our day to day is very much about the present. But what is important is how do we set this up? How do we stay successful so that we are able to support what's happening in the future? And how do we how do we as a company, and I think this goes back to just like the existence of Lady J as a brewery, how, are, how do we continue to um, operate in a way that people are proud of? So that when women are trying to get into the beer industry, they can see that we're doing it as possible. Or when a gay brewery owner is like having a bad day and feeling alone, you know, in the middle of Nebraska or whatever, they yeah. can be like, okay, yeah, no, I'm not alone. So it is important to think forward and think about the future and how we want to make sure that we are able to support the women and girls that are going to come before us. That's that's important. But most of our focus is, you know, in the now because we write the checks, <laughs> you know, they have to go to bank accounts that exist today, <laughs> you know, so, um, but we do think about, we do think about um, legacy and, and how that can be important to to people in the future. This anecdote has been documented, but it's I love it. Could you give us the, the Reader's Digest version of, of how you came to the Sandra Day IPA? <laughs> yeah. So the Sandra Day IPA, we uh, we hadn't even opened yet. And this was 20, I think that email came in 2015. We were fundraising. We opened Lady J with $20,000. We started small on purpose because we didn't have a lot of money and we didn't want to go broke. Yeah. Um, and you don't get a bank loan when you give all your profits away, just right. in FYI. Um, and so we started really small and the American Bar Association had found out about our Indiegogo fundraiser that we were doing. And they just wrote a little blog post about it that was like, hey, these lawyers, I'm not a lawyer, but Kate and Jen are, uh, hey, these lawyers are opening a brewery, you know, what would you name your legally themed beer? And somebody had said Sandra Day O'Porter after Sandra Day O'Connor, the first female Supreme Court justice in the United States. And we get this email like, I don't know, a couple of days later, and all it says, the subject line was, mom wants an IPA. And Kate was like, this is weird. And then she opens the email and it's from Scott O'Connor, Sandra Day's son. And he was just like, hey, my mom reads the American Bar Association blog and like saw this like thing about you all, but she doesn't like porters. Can you please name an IPA after her and like Kate lost her mind I will never forget this day yeah. for as long as I live I was sitting at my desk at like my day job that I had and I get this uh this chat pops up and it's Kate absolutely losing her mind like barely making words and I was like did somebody die like what happens to Kate like focus it in you know and so yeah so our very first beer ever that we sold um in our membership was the Sandra Day IPA so her family lets us use the name. Um, her granddaughter lives in town and will stop by. And um, anytime family is visiting, they, they come by and they say hi. They grab a six pack, you know, and um, she's got a fermenter named after her in the back. So it's a very unexpected uh, relationship that we have with her family. Yeah. But they're wonderful, very kind people. And it's just fun. It's just fun. Just a, a couple more questions for mm -hmm. you here. Uh, the brewing world is unsurprisingly male dominated, although from the outside looking in, it seems at least in Colorado, there's a collaborative tight knit community. Have Have you found acceptance and respect within that community? Or do you still have to deal with the, the gatekeeping and boys club BS? I mean, both are there. Uh, the Colorado beer community is very collaborative. And I feel 
very respected and um, well-liked. I don't know why that's important, but it is, right? Like nobody wants to go to work feeling like nobody likes them. Right. (laughs) Uh, So, but yeah, no, it's in general, the uh, the Colorado craft beer community has been very supportive of us. um, And and we've done a lot of great, we actually have a lot of great collaborations coming up uh, this summer. And so we... We don't, we get it more from, this is hilarious, like the gatekeeping and just like sexist comments and all of that. We actually get more from beer drinkers, consumers. Media, yeah. Yep. So we get it. Yeah. We got, we have social media trolls. Yeah. Um, and that happens a lot. And then just like a lot of times we get it a lot at festivals. So mm. we'll get just, just these dudes who have had one too many. Yeah. Um, we'll say something smart which is actually quite stupid right and uh so we get it we do get it more on the consumer side um than we do in the actual like professional side but there is uh there is a an element of again it's that representation thing there are decisions being made around a lot of tables that aren't including women Mm -hmm. and that is coming from my peers in the actual like professional industry so it's not certainly not perfect and it definitely happens every day all the time but here, you know, my personal day-to-day experience, uh, my my colleagues in the beer world in the neighborhood, they they love Lady J and they have a lot of respect for us. You you talked about creating a model that others can replicate. You were even the subject of a national story on CBS. Has that begun paying div- dividends? Are you are you hearing from other women-led breweries looking for mentorship or, or that are just saying, "Hey, you inspired me to follow this path that you're paving out?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll have. A handful of calls every year. I try to make myself available whenever I can to have phone calls with anybody who wants to start a social enterprise brewery or any woman who's trying to open a brewery and just needs some advice or wants to ask questions and to feel that they can. <laughs> you know, it's hard to put that stuff out there, especially if you're a woman and you ask the wrong dude. You could get you could get an answer that you won't forget about for the rest of your life right. that'll just annoy the hell out of you, right? So, but we get. Uh, I will have probably five or six phone calls a year with women who are in the industry or wanting to be in the industry who are trying to trying to open their own. And then uh, some of them are trying to do social enterprise, which is great. And then I also get men who are trying to open a social enterprise brewery here and there who will stop by the tap room or want a phone call. Um, so yeah, it has. We've started to see it. Um, it's happened a little bit more the last few, you know, two or three years, which is surprising that. Uh, post-COVID, people are still wanting to open philanthropic businesses, which is good. It's a yeah, good sign. Very good. Um, so I hope, I hope, yeah, I hope those calls keep coming and that we can just keep, I don't want Lady J to be special forever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it'd be nice if if we were- um, A pioneer. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you, you have a master's in theological studies mm-hmm. and you work for the Isla School of Theology. On the surface, it might seem that world is a world apart from being a badass social entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. But I have to imagine there are parallels and intersections in those passions. Is that an accurate assessment? Oh, yeah. I, you know, uh, I never took a business class. I'm not really that good at math, right? So uh, this stuff day to day for like running a business, um, one might think a theological degree wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't help you with. But what it does do is my... My background in theological studies really did focus a lot on um, these sort of underrepresented communities in churches, um, and then you know, there's un- the entire Bible is on un- underrepresented communities. That's what the right. entire book is about. So, what I learned from my theological degree in education, and then from working at a school of theology for six years, uh, is the community aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't go to church anymore. I'm not a I'm not a religious person at all. But the the ways in which people gather around 
food and drink and in community with each other is is very much something that I understand and uh, pay a lot of attention to. Fellowship, uh, like-mindedness, mm-hmm. just that yeah. sense of community. Yeah, and so, and what I talk about is uh, beer is essentially liquid bread. Yeah. That's like most of the recipe. And so <laughs> I always talk about people, when people are drinking beer together, they're breaking liquid bread together. And there is something about just like being human that makes us want to gather around a table together over food and drink. And so there's a lot of theology underneath that, um, that yeah, if you buy me two beers, I'll get super deep into it, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you've dedicated your life essentially to helping others. That's mm-hmm. very admirable, um, which is the loftiest intentions of most belief systems. What's the evolution of Lady J for here? What, what, mm-hmm. Where do you see this going and, and how would you like to see it evolve? Yeah, I mean, you know, we are we're growing right now, so we're we're always trying to figure out what's next for Lady J. So uh, at some point down the road, if we continue to grow in the way that we are, we're gonna physically run out of space again, which happens to us about every two or three years, which is a good problem to have. Um, so we might uh, we might be trying to figure out a bigger location or um, how do we streamline distribution in a way where. You know, we don't need as much cold storage in the back or whatever. So we are thinking about our physical space quite a bit. Um, And then in terms of, you know, just who we are as a company, um, you know, my my dream for Lady J would be to get us to a place where we have some more full-time staff um, and being able to support some more salaries and... um, and have have the company grow in a way that shows that you really can support um, a, t- a a good solid team of folks. So you know we have we have uh, nine staff on Lady J right now, and that's and that's great. And it's it feels good to be able to create jobs for the neighborhood. That always feels good. But you know one day uh, I'll I'll be over it. <laughs> <laughs> and and want to take a break, and so my very long term goal is be able to get Lady J to a place where Kate and Jen and I don't need to be around to have it run. So um, I think you know my career's work is going to be about starting Lady J and getting Lady J to a really good, healthy um, place that can last a long time after I'm gone. So that's that's really what it's about: is how do we how do we make Lady J become bigger than just me or just Allison or just Kate or just Jen? Like how do we how do we get us to a place where um, once all of us are like, you know, super old and tired of <laughs> tired of brewing and tired of social media that we can pass it on to the next generation and have it um, be in a really good place. Uh, I'll, I'll end on a personal note. When people ask me why I'm proud to work in Aurora, one of the inevitable things that I bring up is Lady Justice Brewing because of how unique of an endeavor it is and how positive it is. So just want to say thank you to you and your team for for bringing light to Aurora and and all the good work that you do. It it doesn't go unnoticed and Mm -hmm. and, uh, super grateful that you took the time to talk to us today. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's Betsy Lay, one of the owners of Lady Justice Brewing. Make sure you visit them at 9735 East Colfax in Aurora, right near the corner of Colfax and Dayton. You can also check them out at ladyjusticebrewing.com. And make sure to follow on Facebook and Instagram at Lady Justice Brewing. Thank you for listening to the Gateway to the Rockies podcast. Visit Aurora is the official destination marketing organization for the city of Aurora, Colorado, and acts as the primary liaison between meeting planners and hotel partners. As Aurora's convention and visitors bureau, Visit Aurora's mission is grounded in showcasing Aurora as a premier destination for meetings, business, and leisure travel. Visit Aurora represents more than 75 plus hotel properties with 13,500 plus guest rooms and more than one 
million square feet of meeting space, including Colorado's largest resort, Gaylord Rockies Resort and Convention Center. As Colorado's third largest city, Aurora is located minutes away from Denver International Airport and showcases mountain views, memorable meeting spaces, and 250 plus international eateries that offer a unique experience for each and every visitor. As the gateway to the Rockies, Visit Aurora's role in the local community goes beyond marketing the city as a destination. The Visit Aurora team is here to assist you with your Colorado visit from facilitating your meeting, event, or convention to helping you discover local flavor and attractions. Go beyond the boardroom in Aurora, Colorado. For more, visit us at visitaurora.com.